This is the Right Way Podcast. Right Way Podcast. The 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 Right Way Podcast. This is Mark Brandy. I'm here on the Right Way Podcast talking with Sam about my new book, The Others. Yeah, thank you so much for the introduction there, Mark Brandy. And hello to you, everyone listening to this episode of the Right Way Podcast program out there in the Neverscape. Uh, it is I, your host, Sam Elliott, Samuel James Elliott of the Right Way Podcast. And the person whom you just heard introducing this episode is none other than tonight's guest, Mark Brandy. Mark Brandy is a uh, very renowned, uh, deservedly so, renowned writer of Australian uh, contemporary fiction. Uh, he started off his, his life or his writing provenance uh, began with his work within the legal sphere, uh, and then Mark crossed over. Uh, did a, I believe he did a. Oh, I'm testing my memory here, but I think it was a fellowship at Veruna, and he worked on the manuscript for what would then become Wimmera, which was then picked up, deservedly so picked up, and a uh, huge critical acclaim was published thereafter. I think I won like a National Dagger Award, all this other sort of stuff. No well-deserved, and then from there, he followed that up with The Rip, which was a very different story uh, in his then sort of trademark fashion or his writing style, very beautiful, very easy to read. I think I smashed it in like one night. And now, tonight, we were discussing his new new book that's come out, The Others. Again, very different story. I'm, I always like a writer that uh, writes very different stories or challenges themselves like that. So The Others is uh, follows or is followed as depicted by uh, seemingly with an almost like a diary format of an 11-year-old boy, an unnamed narrator, him and his father living on some remote property. You assume it's Australia, just given the the Mark's sort of exquisite sort of prose descriptions there of the, the land and the animals that inhabit it. But I mean, it really could be anywhere. Uh, but yeah, so it's uh, primarily told through for this diary format of this 11-year-old boy living with his father, uh, sort of uh, seemingly in a post-apocalyptic type situation, really, or as uh, it would be led to believe from the way in which the father sort of guards his son from the titular others, the titular others that, uh, that are this sort of uh, unseen presence that uh, is kind of predicated upon the fear and the apprehension of the father as he kind of enforces that with his son. Uh, there's a lot I love with this book and it was an absolute joy to talk to Mark, but uh, I think I've done enough of an intro and I'd much rather talk to the man himself. So everyone, please give a big digital round of applause to the lovely Mark Brandy discussing with me his latest novel, The Others. Mark Brandy, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program this evening, man. How you doing? I'm good, Sam. It's great to be back on your show. It is. It is. It, well, you, 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 like you... Have been there from from the get go pre show. You were. I was talking to you. I was at. I was doing it. I remember. I was on the phone to you. I was doing it when I was doing my degree, and we were talking about Wimmera. And I was on the phone, and that was when I did my transcribing, and then it uh, appeared on compulsive reader. Now we've got the podcast, and you're three books, three books deep, uh, untold pieces published, and it's uh, yeah, it's a good crazy time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was. Yeah, it was not long after Wimmera came out. I think it was last mm. time I spoke to you. So, a lot of water under the bridge since then. So, yeah. Absolutely. Look, let's start off with an oldie but a goodie. Where did the idea for the others first generate from, Mark? Because I feel like I'm, I had an answer in my head of I thought I did. And I thought it was going to be you saying the 11 year old voice spoke to you first and then it all went from there. But I'm dying to know. Tell me, where did it, where did it all originate from? Yeah, yeah. So, it really began, I suppose, as a, a short story that I wrote back in, I think it was 2016. So it was before Wimmera came out. Oh, wow, okay. And, um, and that was published in, in Mianjin. And it was basically a, a fictionalised account of some real events from my childhood. Because when I was probably about um, maybe eight years old, I think, and, and growing up in a country town in Western Victoria. My, um, my dad had a farm outside of town and on the farm we had sheep and, um, you know, uh, he at various times tried different ventures out there. We had a fish farm for a while. We had all sorts of stuff going on out there. 
And, um, and because we had sheep, there was issues with vermin, things like rabbits, foxes, all that sort of stuff. And we used to go hunting out on the farm, and um, which I had really mixed feelings about as a kid, you know, because I loved animals, but I sort of understood that we needed to protect our stock as well. And Dad used to set these, I don't know if you remember those kind of steel-jawed mm. traps um, that were around in the 80s. I think they still are around now, like you need a permit to use them. But um, he used to set those. And, and one time he, he went out to the farm and I remember he came back home and he said, Mark, come out to the car, I've got something to show you. And went out there and there's this kind of crumpled, sack in the back seat and he reaches reaches in and, and takes it out and there's a young fox that he's got there and so he takes the fox inside and i'm thinking you know what's going to happen here because this is like this animal we've tried to kill what what's my dad up to and he tended to its leg like dressed its wound and he then made an enclosure for it out in the backyard and we we basically kept it as a pet and you know, I, it was probably a, a kind of, it was a strange experience for me as a kid because it was kind of one of the first insights I had into some of the complexities and contradictions of of my dad and I think of, of parenthood generally, you know. And I suppose it was that kind of intrigue that, that took me back to that story and that, that voice. And it really was about voice. Like, you... you kind of hit the nail on the head when you touched on that because I, I wanted to go back. I thought that, that that voice had more to say. And so that's where, where the story began. But there was probably, I'm giving you a long answer now. But like, that's a good answer. Keep going. There was probably a, a, a deeper um, motivation for, for why I wrote the story and I think that that's something really I've only identified in hindsight, you know, mm. and, and it's always the way I, I think like part of and it's been true of Wimra and the rip and now the others that partly through um, talking to people like yourself and, and having to do publicity and doing interviews and, and thinking deeply about my work, I, I sort of understand it better and I understand it often better through hearing from readers too. But I, I was thinking about, you know, what, what drove me to write this? And I think it was in part um, about my, my father's relationship with, with his father. So my, my dad, he grew up in, um, in Italy, in a, in a remote uh, area in northern Italy. Um, they lived in a, a stone house, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. He was the second eldest of seven kids. Um, he grew up like in the shadows of the Second World War, so it was this really volatile, kind of dangerous time and, and extremely poor, you know, like they lived pretty much a subsistence kind of existence. Like they had no running water, they had no electricity or anything like that. They just survived by what they had on the land. And so things were fairly volatile more broadly, but at home things were even more volatile because my, my grandfather, my dad's father, was a a very violent man. He um, was a womanizer, alcoholic. He um, beat his wife, beat his kids. And so my dad grew up in this like really tough environment. And, you know, as he, he grew up and, you know, became an adult himself and had kids and everything else um, and was a parent to us, he was always really determined um, I suppose not to repeat the sins of, of his father in, mm. in how how we were raised, and I suppose I was interested in exploring that the kind of you know the extent to which our early childhood experiences shape us, and you know how much is um, innate in us as as humans. I suppose those those kind of pro-social traits about being kind to one another and all those sorts of things. How much is innate and how much do we learn? And I think in the others, that's, that's what I really wanted to explore with, with the character of, of Jacob. And it's always, it was kind of hard to talk about in too much detail because of um, spoilers for, for listeners as well. But yeah, that, that was really the, I think, the driving force behind the book. 
It's interesting that you mentioned about like this innate sort of compatibility between all of this sem semblance of connection I feel that's found within, particularly with this sort of dynamic that you, I feel that you explore within the others. It's that of the, the father and the son. Jacob, I, I can't believe you mentioned his name because that's at like the very end when you're, when you're told that. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> but, so what, what I always felt first and foremost was that it came from a place of love, the motivations that was never for me, never in doubt, even the more sort of dubious sort of things in which the father does. Um, it was always a, a sense of familial duty. And I guess that there was some sort of allusion to that. You, you never really kind of delved too much into it. I think you felt like you wanted to keep the sort of uh, focus on their dynamic, but I can get this impression, certainly what you're talking about there with your father's father and how he himself was shaped by his father and how that sort of uh, can can then impact and then have the, I don't want to say trickle down effect because that's not really accurate, but the shaping of oneself and then how they that in turn kind of dictates or can dictate, I feel, how a father will then raise his son. Certainly, I would argue up and down. That's been my, my experience of my father. Uh, I'm yet to have children, uh, yet, to, yet to screw up some kids, but, you know, that could potentially be happening one day as well. But what I wanted to talk a little bit about, because we've talked about, it's interesting, Mike, that you've mentioned that it's your your own sort of some of your experiences uh, on the farm kind of uh, enabled you to slip into this voice. But I want you to talk a little bit more about that because to me on paper, it seems quite something that's seemingly realisable. It's, it's okay to do or try to get into that sort of uh, voice. But I actually think in realising it, it's actually quite difficult to do is to slip into this voice of an 11-year-old convincingly and I want you to talk a little bit about how you balance the authenticity of the voice with still managing to sort of convey what you needed to as the writer at the end of the day and sort of set the scene. Because that in itself, to me, seems like the biggest sort of tightrope balance that you'd probably be doing. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, it's it's, a, it, it's kind of the, the magic of it in some way is slipping into that that voice. Mm. And, I, and I feel like... You know, that that kind of inner child in me, without getting too kind of psychoanalytical about it, but it's, it's kind of, it's it's fairly present. I think we all have that, you know. It's the same um, inner child that gets frustrated in traffic or throws a tantrum every now and again or, um, you know, just curses the world. And, but also has like a, a sense of wonder too. And I, and I feel like I can I can kind of tap into that um, fairly easily. When I say that, like, it's it's a really um, draining experience as mm. well. Like, I found when I when I was writing this book, you know, it, it's it's really tough because you, you've got a a limited palette, you know, within yeah. to, within which you're working. So you've got an eleven year old boy. He's homeschooled. He's got limited. Um, vocabulary, um, worldliness, um, everything that he learns is basically from his father um, and through the dictionary, the encyclopedia and the magazines that he, that he has there. And, you know, to, to paint then a world that's vivid and convincing, um, but also like compelling enough for an adult reader is is the the art in it i suppose and mm. and what's what's tough about it and i i kind of you know it is like you, the expression that you use walking a tightrope that i think that's exactly right because you're you're always resisting that urge to you know for, for the kid to become too precocious and that mm. voice sophisticated but at the same time there's like a um i guess a, a coming of age that's happening um with, with jacob throughout the narrative so he is becoming more curious he is becoming more aware but you, you kind of you know you, you're trying to cast a spell on the reader in a way that's the way i, I like when i the books that i really love I, I feel immersed in and i feel like the the author disappears out of the picture, you know, you just, you're, you're there, you're inside of it and it's convincing. And, you know, um, to, to give an example of a, of a book, which undoubtedly was an influence on, on this book would like Cormac McCarthy's The Road, mm -hmm. you know, where you're, you're in this world, even though it's a, it's a harrowing, tough world at times, you, you're in it and you believe it and you, you stop thinking about the, the author. 
that that's what I what I want. And always the, the danger is like the, the minute you see the author's hand come into it, you know, um, and and then the spell is broken. Like the, mm. the second that you um, that the character becomes um, too too smart and says something or observes something that you you don't find convincing, the spell's broken. And so like that's the way I I see it and that's why I find it like I found it incredibly hard to write this book and I found it harder. Um, it's hard to be objective about these things, but I, I, I found it harder to write than Wimra, harder than the, certainly harder than the rip um, because it just, it took so much more out of me in writing it. And I, I had to like, in, in a practical sense from day to day, when drafting, I had to stay in that world consistently. And so I, I couldn't have breaks from it. I had to stay in there. And, and that was, was really tough. I, I didn't kind of um, realise it at the time, but I, I got out the other side of it and, and I was exhausted. I was just a, a wreck from doing it, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's, I, 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 read, I don't know who said it. There was a, a musician... I, I read it recently. I think it was in Rolling Stone. Someone talking about, you know, the the, the really um, great songs, and he, he was saying that, you know, um, I, I wish I could remember the song, and I wish I could remember the musician. But they were saying that it's a it's a relatively simple song. Um, you know, not a lot of instruments used. Very simple structure, and that's what makes it so hard to make it, make it mm. good, you know, and, and people can think sometimes that um, if you have a lot of um, characters, if you have a lot of um, things happening in the plot, that that's more, more difficult, but I, that hasn't been my experience. If anything, the reverse is true. And having that constraint, I think is, is, is really important for me. Like I, I, I need to have that constraint. I need to have, like, in in the rip, I had it too because Danny was, you know, um, a, like, drug-affected, homeless woman. She was the um, narrator. And so, again, I had a limited kind of palette within, to, within which I had to work. So it's, yeah, I, I'm, I'm probably not... Um, explain myself very well but I, I, I that's like I, I keep being drawn to to these kinds of characters I suppose that are, are really like struggling um, against the world and mm. and I hope you know that that comes through through in the story but yeah it, it certainly it took a chunk out of me this one I could, yeah I mean I could t- totally see why because like I said like it's seemingly like a, like a premise you are yeah I could do that. But then in execution, it's, it's something that's kind of innately really, really complex to capture. And it's interesting you mentioned about this sort of limited palette there and you kind of hit the, like what you said, you, you hit the nail on the head there. And another thing that you said that I really, really like, because I totally agree with it. And I, that's what I thought really made this, this voice so authentic was the sense of wonder throughout. There was multiple times that I was like, you've nailed the kid's wonder. Um, a lot of the time it was to do with animals, interaction with animals, wondering about animals' lives, that sort of thing. I thought that that was very just really kind of added to this overall sort of authentic, authentic voice throughout the the whole novel with with the others, particularly because I do I do agree with you, Mike. I could totally see that it would be like a challenging thing, and I'm not surprised to hear from you saying like it was a it was a draining experience. And I can only imagine how many sort of rewrites and stuff like that you went through, let alone to continue sustaining this sort of uh, voice and letting your imagination flow like that. Tell me about the diary format as well, because that was another one that I found interesting too. Was it always how you sort of saw it as it was going to be the narrative was going to be told like that? Yeah, yeah, that that was was pretty much how it came out from from the start. It was it was weird. I I, I didn't um, I didn't know where I was heading with it. I, mm. I didn't know, um, and that was the same with with the rip too. When I wrote that, you know, like I start writing the first bit, and I'm seeing the world through through Jacob's eyes. Okay, what's he going to be doing? He's going to be observing what's going on in the farm or well, how's he doing it he's doing it in a diary so i just started to construct it in that way and then the reasons for the diary and i guess why his father gives it to him materialize later on those kind of um plot 
aspects to it. Um, I think it was, you know, <laughs> I wish I could say it was a, a choice, but it, it kind of, it, it came came to me, I think, through the character. Um, and, you know, I, I like that kind of epistolary form. Um, I think, you know, I remember reading, um, it wasn't diary entries, but when I was a kid reading uh, Dracula, Bram Stoker's yeah. Dracula, sort of in a series of letters, I think, that Jonathan Harker sends to his um, fiance. Will and Mayo. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, um, yeah. Uh, and and then more recently, um, again, a very different form. But we we need to talk about Kevin, the Lion mm. Tribe mm. as well. I think when you you have kind of when you play with with structure in that way, um, you can do some really interesting things because there's the tension, I suppose, between you know um, what Jacob's recording um, versus what's really going on. Mm. Um, what, why is the father giving him the diary? Um, and then the sort of gaps in the diary as well, um, the things that he's not allowed or not meant to record, and then the secrecy of keeping the diary and all those sorts of things. It, it kind of made a lot of sense to me. Um, yeah, but it was a, like I, I felt like I was drafting in the dark a little bit because I, I, didn't, I didn't share um, the manuscript until... Um, fairly late in my drafting process when i say fairly late like i i was probably you know four or five drafts in before i um handed it over to anyone and i i just didn't know if it was going to fly you know i, I didn't know if it was going to going to work because you, you just you have it all in your head and yeah it's it's that always that that difficulty in in being objective about your own own work mm. and i and I knew this was going to be a bit of a departure in content and in form. Um, and so you never know if your readers are going to go with you on that. So it's, it's kind of been, it's been, been heartening that, that, that they have, you know, that they've sort of been willing to go into those um, dark places with me again. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it was just a, such a fascinating choice I found because I was like, by virtue of what's going on in terms of recording it within this sort of context of a diary, that means it's, yeah, like you said, and you obviously had fun of doing it, but it's, uh, it can be like a double-edged sword, I guess, because then, you know, it's the deprivation of the words. So if the character is unable to contribute, then, then it's kind of difficult in some parts to tell the story. But like you said, like, you I mean, you've, you've had fun with it and you've kind of like really kind of learn how to play with the genre into a way that suits you and how you want to overall tell the, the narrative, I guess. Yeah. 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 And I think that, you know, you, your earlier point about the, the sense of wonder um, mm. was so important. Like you, that's, I guess the, the, the really alluring thing in a lot of ways about writing that, that, that child's voice is that they'll, they'll see, see beauty and and see things that we don't see as adults and and the way that they bring their imagination to bear upon the world is something quite unique and and i really um felt that i had to have that in the story because you you can't just have you know it's always about light and shade and you, mm. you just can't have too much um I don't want to say despair, but like um, like darkness and foreboding um, happening, and and I and I think it, it it felt quite natural for for Jacob to be um, you know having those um, uh, interactions, particularly with the animal world and the natural world, and expressing that kind of wonder and curiosity, because I, I think that is something that that kids do regardless of the circumstances. Mm. It's interesting you talk about like the light and the shade and the, the darkness and the light, because I felt that one of the, the lighter aspects of it, uh, of the story was just the love of words. I felt that that was probably one of the most enduring sort of uh, qualities that really shone through, through my reading of it um, in particular. And, and on paper, again, it's interesting because, there's not a whole lot of reading material. It's not like they're isolated and trapped within a library in some, some derelict city or something. It's, there's only, um, from my recollection, there's the encyclopedia and a woman's day or something like that, like an old woman's day with Elizabeth Taylor. In it. And um, 
but the love of words and this appreciation is something that kind of um, gets passed on throughout. I wanted you to talk a little bit about that, Mark, because that's, to me, maybe it's because you're a writer at heart and it's, you know, so many writers I talk to, no one's ever said, I hate words. I hate, you know, the way they feel. I hate the way they sound there. People just love words. And, and for me, that's what really shone through and kind of harkening back to what we are saying with the darkness and the light. That was one of the light aspects that kind of, again, fueled into, again, what we were talking about, which is this childish wonder and appreciation for the beauty of the world. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that that's probably more of an expression of of myself um in, in jacob than, than in any other aspect to his uh character i think that that you know i, I it, it felt quite natural for him to be um be looking to the written word to to understand what was happening around him and to give meaning to it he, you know, uses those definitions in the dictionary, in the encyclopedia to, to try to build some kind of um, scaffold, I suppose, of, of his kind of understanding of what was happening. But also that was, that was kind of fun because I could use um, those definitions um, and the imagery as well to, I suppose, um, speak to some of the subtext of perhaps what he was picking up on um, with his father, but, but couldn't yet uh, quite understand or um, express accurately. So, um, and that's where I, I suppose um, I'm kind of respectful of the reader to draw their own inferences where, where he's, um, using a particular definition or using a particular image or, um, uh, yeah, like using the material that he's got around him but doesn't really grasp completely what they mean and, and I'm, I'm really relying on the reader to, to draw that out. Um, the, the woman, I think it was the Women's Weekly that he, that he uses at mm. the loves and he's got the picture in there yeah of elizabeth taylor and because his mum's um deceased and he, he's only got a very very vague recollection of her and you know i think that the partly again drawing from my own experience as a, a child growing up in in the 80s sort of pre-internet and in a country town i think that a lot of the times you know when you picked up magazines and stuff around the house or whatever it was you you kind of you squeezed every last drop out of everything that you mm. read. I used to get, I remember my brother's magazines and stuff too. Like my what my older brother used to get National Lampoon mags, and like I used to read them cover to cover, and re re read them repeatedly. And um, and same with some of the comic books that one of my other brothers used to get. He used to get like the 2000 AD magazines, and I used oh, to no. like read them and like just devour that stuff you know and um yeah i just think that there's like against that that child's um wonder and viewpoint but also just being deprived in some ways you know and so he's got these um limited uh things that he can draw from in the encyclopedia the dictionary the magazine and then what his father's telling him and so he's really um squeezing every ounce out of that and and that's how he he comes to some growing understanding of, of, of what's happening to him and happening on the farm as well squeezing every ounce out this is such a good way to put it because certainly i remember that as well i mean like i used to do it with mad magazines uh phantom comics all that sort of stuff as well like yeah so i can totally like that just resonated with me the phantom so right yeah, the Phantom is great. The Phantom's still going, I think. Um, but yeah, anyway, the way in which the still talking a little bit about words and the thing I liked about, you've mentioned this sort of the limited palette thing. And what I thought was really, really cool, still, still with the words sort of uh, subject, is that when you kind of, because the narrator is 11 years old, limited palette doesn't really know much except for obviously what his dad tells him as well as his limited source material you realise a lot of how much words, uh, their meaning is attached to something like an empirically lived experience that someone else kind of needs to tell you about in some ways to sort of shed light on it and give any sort of clarity or articulate it in any sort of way that you can possibly understand. 
And there, tying in, was a few kind of funny times with the, the whole Kid Wonder thing with kind of getting it so totally wrong as to what a, a word could potentially mean. And I think that that was another fascinating thing as well, Mike, because what you're talking about with the subtext is that, again, shows those were the first sort of early signs or warning signs I felt that there might have been a bit of deceitfulness that was going on by virtue of the way in which uh, the dad would explain the word sometimes or choose to deliberately not explain them properly. Talk a little bit about that and how this sort of empirical experience within one's lived life and the way in which that can then convey meaning of words to, uh, to others in this instance, an 11 year old boy. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great insight. I, I think that, you know, a, a, a lot of our understanding of, of language, th- there's a lot of politics and power dynamics behind our, um, our, our reckoning with the world, but also how we understand what words mean and, and what we're told they mean as well. And I think in with Jacob and his father, because it is just the two of them, he's so dependent on what his, what his dad is, is telling him. And I suppose as he, as he comes of age um, and he starts to question really what, what his dad's telling him, he's then referring to, to this source material in order to, um, I suppose, give him a bit of um, uh, reassurance sometimes that mm. is what his dad is saying right or not. And, he, and he, you start to see that he, he really isn't, isn't sure about it, you know, and I, and I think that with, without that, and I mean, I went through this same thing in my, in my, my childhood and that, you know, when you're coming to, to learn um, vocabulary and you're broadening your vocabulary and, and a lot of like what I did when I was a kid in, in reading was I would pick up a dictionary and, you know, try to understand, you know, what a word means and, um, and in um, in the context that I was reading it in a in a book, and it was was often often tricky. And you know, you'd go out there in the world and then sort of test out your knowledge in a way. And talking to someone, you might make a complete dick of yourself in sort of like you know um, misunderstanding what a what a word meant. And and I think you know, Jacob doesn't have any of that. He doesn't have any ability to to test it. He doesn't mm. have any way to know um, uh, what words really mean in some ways, but also to test uh, what his, his dad's telling him about what's going on, about the, the others and what might lie beyond um, the, far, the um, perimeter of the farm. And it's this broader um, kind of questioning, I guess, about his, his lived experience and he, he's using... Um, the, the material that he's got is, is, is fuel for that, I suppose. And, but he's still, you know, he's, he loves his, his dad and, and his dad loves him as well. There, there's a, it's clearly a, a, a huge power imbalance. I mean, there's always a power imbalance between kids and their parents and mm. kids and adults. But in this situation, it, it is up to a factor of 10 because he, is so isolated there and he's so dependent on his father in, in every way. Um, but th- there still is, you know, and, and that was really, a, a sort of speaking on a slightly different topic, but I mean, that was kind of something I really wanted to retain in the story too, that it wasn't like his, his dad, um, you know, again, without spoilers, um, he, he, he might, he certainly might be misguided to put it mildly in a, in a lot of ways, but I, I think there's aspects to him again, to go to that light and shade, there's aspects to him that, you know, are, are warm and loving and caring, but there are all these other aspects, which, you know, Jacob is discovering as well as he's, as he um, moves through the story. Um, and, and I guess it does relate back to what we're talking about with, with, um, the understanding of language and understanding of words and how that is really loaded and, you know, and the way that um, the father sometimes explains things to his son is, is driven, um, we think, by good intentions at, at sometimes, but, but we learn as, as we go along through the story that there's actually a, a bigger um, 
a picture of play uh, to do with, with the father and his own past and his own psyche and those things. So, um, yeah, it was a real, like, even talking about it now, you know, I, I could sort of, I, I transport myself back <laughs> to that farm and, and, and being there, like, I can, I can see it every time I, um, every time I sp speak about this story, like, I'm, I'm, I'm taken back there, you know, um, which is good and bad. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, they're fully realised characters, so I guess it's probably not too difficult for you to do that, because maybe if they were, and you've spent so much time with them, I dare say, when you've been writing it, so it's probably pretty easy to revisit them, just like they're real real people, albeit only people that Mike Brandy can see in Mike Brandy's mind's eye. It's interesting that you mentioned, uh, you mentioned love there a couple of times, and I felt that love is definitely something that shines through throughout including the misguided, um, the more misguided sort of uh, actions of the dad. And I felt that, yeah, I always felt that love was there. And I think that there's another part, and we've kind of talked a little bit about, uh, a little bit about the meaning of words and how that kind of then sort of adds on to sort of the son figuring out that his dad's kind of at least bending some truths or being deceitful about some things. And the thing I liked about that is that there was he sort of accepted that he, he knew that his father wasn't exactly telling the truth, but he kind of, I felt that there was this sort of, he, he gauged that he was trying to protect him in some capacity. And I want you to talk a little bit about that Mark in terms of someone that's willing to accept stuff, even if it's a glaring lie. And even if it might be potentially uh, depriving them of a life more widely lived as it were, uh, because of this one love that we've talked about, and to, well, still trailing on from that, this love and acceptance of the father, even if it's, uh, might be telling some pretty life-altering fibs there. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I think, you know, Jacob's situation is, is again, so peculiar in that it, it is just him and his father throughout much of this narrative. So he's, he's very dependent on, on, he, on his dad. And even when, you know... It, these doubts start to to form in his mind he's he's pretty limited in the way that he can um uh i guess change his situation you know there's only so much that he can he can do mm. um but he i suppose you know I, I think that we we all to some degree um in our relationships with with, with people um, and with loved ones and parents or partners or whoever it is, there's always a, um, an aspect of, you know, denial mm. that, that comes <laughs> to play, like that we, we kind of, um, yeah, turn a blind eye in some ways to, to certain things. And sometimes unconsciously we, we, we do this because there is, a I suppose, a, a deeper... Um, sentiment there and 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 deeper deeper love and and connection and so um I, I think that that's that's true of jacob jacob and his dad that you know he 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 does even though he's you know be, becoming more aware he, he he doesn't he's not um he's not given to thinking ill of his father his <clears throat> his reflex is to think that his dad is is being protective of him and and cares about him and he's not automatically thinking oh shit my, my dad is bonkers and this mm. is all just like um a horror show um he he wants to think well of him and when he's you know um later in the narrative when he's he's kind of um i guess his faith in his father is put to the test with what he discovers up on 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 the hill, mm. um, and where he's f faced with that choice about what he's going to do. I mean, I think that that is really um, where, where it, it, it comes to a head. You know, mm. like is what all it, that his father's told him has it all been a lie? If it has been a lie, what does he do now? If um, you know, even if it is a lie, do I have to betray my father? Can I still, you know, walk both sides of the street here and um, everything's going to be okay? Um, there's a lot he has to, you know, deal with for, 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 a, young, for a young kid. Um, but, you know, I, I think that in a lot of ways we only, well, in almost every way, we only really know um, ourselves and 
each other, um, the people we know, when we're put to the test, you know, when we're put under pressure. And it's easy sometimes, you know, when things are going well in our lives, um, you know, it's easy to be easygoing and nice and everything else mostly. Um, but when, when we're put under um, enormous pressure, that's when I think sometimes our, our true character is shown. And I've experienced that in, in my own life and, um, you know, and in those I've known as well. And it's, it's really tough and it can be really um, confronting as mm-hmm. well and, and shocking. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, that, um, uh, I suppose, um, question of our, our self-interest versus our, um, our uh, uh, desire to help others or our um, duty to help others at different times, you know, um, is, there's often a tension there. And I think that um, Jacob is, is faced with that in the story in a, in a really um, acute way, you know. Um, but, but still, he, he moves out the other side of that. And this is what I find kind of um, interesting about his character as a kid too, is that he moves through the other side of that. He, he knows more about his father, but he still, you know, he, he still loves and respects him despite mm. what he learns and, um, and wishes the, the best for him in, in, in many ways. And, um, yeah, I, I think that it's, it's kind of um, like I only, I, I didn't set out for, for the ending to this story to happen the way that it, that did. I didn't have it clearly in my mind when, when I started the story, it, it really, um, yeah, it, it, it flowed quite organically as the, the characters developed and, mm. and as I came to know them. And, and I think that that's been again, true of, um, of each of my novels so far. It's interesting that you mentioned desire and duty. I felt that desire uh, throughout, and what you've, you've also talked a lot about Jacob being um, like loving his father and respecting his father, and I totally got that throughout. I totally got throughout that he genuinely wanted to be a good son um, throughout. He was he was trying. He was always sort of agonising over the, the occasions that he sort of defied his um, his father. But I felt that there was the duty. Uh, there was the turning point there as well. So I feel like the duty was wanting to preserve the life in which they have. Uh, and the desire is the desire to, well, maybe not so much desire, but then this sort of uh, choice that you kind of touched on there up on the hill, I'll let the readers figure that out. But that's what I always felt. I always felt that he, Jacob was always a good son that wanted to be a good son, loved and respect his father and wanted to show that he, his father, he loved and respected him. The two ways in which I really felt that that was symbolized was the love of seeing the gold tooth smile and the... It was more sadness than fright of seeing the soft eyes because that a lot of it, and that kind of could be, you know, oscillate between um, anger and, but mostly I interpret it most of the time as kind of like a profound sadness. You just didn't want to see his dad sad for whatever it was, wherever it's the drought or something like that. And I feel to me, that's you doing the, uh, the writing 101, the Mark Randy of showing and not telling because those were the two sort of symbols for me that stood out throughout their interaction throughout the novel. Yeah, yeah, and I think that I'm glad that you you picked up on the the, the, the soft eyes in, in that way um, because I think that that could be, in a few instances at least, it, it can be read a number of different ways, but I think that that was mostly, um, you know, Jacob's empathy for his father when he was seeing that and, and worry um, for, for his father and, and uh, what was happening to him. Um, less so fear um so so yeah it's it's kind of um you know it it's those two symbols that you 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 hit on there the gold tooth the soft eyes they were um there very early in the drafting in, in the first kind of um uh interactions between jacob and his father they they came to me and and i wanted to you know, um, give the reader enough, I suppose, that they could, like, again, understand what was happening with with Jacob and his father, but without 
beating them over the head with it too, because Jacob's father is, you know, not the most loquacious of characters. Mm -hmm. He's not you know, sort of sitting down with his son going, oh, well, I'm feeling this way at the moment. Like he, he's not, he's not that kind of guy uh, by a stretch. So it's um, Jacob uh, trying to um, understand his dad better and mm. more, more, more deeply. Um, yeah. Yeah. I totally get that. You know, who I saw in my head the whole time I was reading it and I was thinking like, this is the role that he was born for is, um, the actor, Matt Nabel, you know, Matt Nabel, you know, that actor, you're nodding your head. Yeah, yeah, I know. I well, saw... he's, got, he's got a book out. Oh yeah, he? he does. Yeah. He's new one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Him the whole time from page one, from page one, oh. that was in my head. I was like, he's, that's the, that's the role he was born to play. I reckon at least. That's well, he, he's a fellow Hachette um, author, I think. So I should like tell my you publisher. You got to have your, <laughs> you got to have your people meet with his people to make that happen. That's right. Look, Mark, tell me a little bit about, cause I, like before, before I kind of get into the, the final question or two, I, I, I just couldn't live with myself. I couldn't sort of bring up with you because there's a, we've talked about connections. There's the main connection that's obviously it stands out between Jacob and his father, but another connection or a series of connections I feel is what kind of uh, causes or at least starts to contribute towards the schism between them, at least in some ways, is the connection that Jacob forms with some of the animals in which they encounter. So obviously the sheep, the fox, I wanted to talk a little bit about that as well, because that to me is another way in which the book was realized. It was like a life that was teeming. It was nature. It was believable because of these sort of uh, creatures that inhabit it and the way in which Jacob interacted with them. Cause it's yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah, that that was that was so important. That was so important. Like again, because I I, I didn't have other characters uh, to work with here. Yeah. Um, Jacob is, and, and Jacob doesn't have them. You know, he doesn't have any other people. Even though he he imagines his mother, he remembers aspects to his mother. He he has has no one. Um, so the the animals in some ways almost become kind of proxies and they you know he invests um so so much love and 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 care to the uh to the sheep to the lambs in particular and you know there's that um moment i think it's in the first half where um jacob's father talks about uh wanting to needing to slaughter one of the, mm -hmm. the lambs and and he, he's kind of um, he's, he's testing his son in a way and he, he's saying, you know, you, you decide which one you, you pick. And Jacob, of course, is you know, horrified by, by this idea and he tries to, um, well, firstly, just pretend that, um, that it's not going to happen. But then, um, you know, uh, he, he thinks that if he reminds his his father of why the, the sheep are good and why they're useful, that, that maybe they can keep them. So there's this kind of bargaining that, that happens. Um, but I think that it, it kind of, you know, it's an expression as well. Uh, Jacob's relationship with, with the animals is an expression of his, his care mm. um, and, and his humanity as well. And, and it gives the reader, and I'm looking at this more, Again, in hindsight, it gives the reader a sense of his um, innate humanity um, shining through, um, even though the, the situation's dire. And mm -hmm. so when um, uh, he, he cares for the, when Jacob cares for the young fox and looks after it and worries for it, um, you know, we're seeing these natural parts to to him i mean his father has said to him look after the fox but he takes it up to a different level you know and in, in a way anthropomorphizes them and like he sees animals as like people in mm. some ways and and i think that that gives the reader some kind of hint of, of what's to come and and with jacob's um uh care for others, uh, which is then given, you know, it's, it's ultimate expression later in the story up on the hill again, no spoilers, but mm. yeah, <laughs> that it's sort of, it's giving some um, earlier insights into those, those, those parts of him. And, you know, I, it's funny because like in writing the books that I've, 
I've written um, in in Wimra, you know, we see the the impact of of, of trauma in this really um, terrible terrible way, um, the impact of child abuse in particular, and then in in the Rip too, there's there's manifestations of of early trauma in in Danny's life through her addiction um, and then living on the streets. And I think that you know it, it's easy sometimes to to have a, a a kind of jaundiced view about um that those things that happen to people when they're younger can inevitably lead to bad shit later in mm. life you know and um and we see that i mean i experienced that in my professional life too working in the justice system you see people coming into the courts and into the correctional environment we've often um you know suffered terribly when that when they were younger and that does happen unquestionably if people aren't given support but it but it isn't isn't the rule yeah. you know it is it doesn't always happen and and that's i suppose with I, I i tend to look at this book in some ways as um a more um optimistic and hopeful book perhaps than uh than Wimmer and, and, and the Rip, even though at first glance it may not appear like that. I, I think that it, it is because it's really about the, 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 the strength of the human spirit and, um, and the way that that shines through in, in Jacob's case. I think the majority of your books do sort of end on some, I'm not going to say like are all resoundingly like the, the clouds <laughs> part and, you know, sunshine shines down you know and angels accompanied by you know a chorus of angels you know singing there's it's but there's there's some elements of of certainly like a positive note within the sort of realistic uh sort of sphere of what's happened i, I just never feel that it's like they all dance off into the sunset but there's always seems to be some note of uh, of, of hopefulness to your to your work there i feel oh. I'm, I'm pleased to hear that because i sometimes feel like i'm subjecting my readers to like eternal suffering <laughs> no, mate, <laughs> no. like yeah oh well that's 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 good to hear like I, I do you know without sort of having you don't want to have a false uplift at the end no. of the book that's for sure but um you know i've recently i was reading i don't know if you've read any willie vlorton at all yeah you know, i know this much is true um yeah uh there's well, a new one yeah the new one which is the the night always comes. I haven't um, read that one. I've only read. Yeah, which, which is is interesting because his books, you know, often um, they're, they're they're pretty dark and they're oh, pretty yeah. blue, and they often like the the end of the book is like oh devastating, but um, <laughs> he, his latest book has a, a, a bit more of a um, a hopeful, I suppose, ending. And yeah, it, it's kind of it, it's it's funny because like I always. I worry about um, like not not. I, I don't want to um, be, be too. You know, I don't want things to be too bleak. I always worry about things being too too bleak. But at the, at the same time, I I, I I have to respect the reader, and I I know when I read books, and when it does have that false uplift at the end, we mm. just sort of tell that that either the editor or the author. Perhaps the editor has come in and gone, yeah. mate. You need you can't end like this. <laughs> like you've got to, something better's going to happen here. Um, and I always, you know, I feel a little bit cheated by that. I, I don't mind, um, you know, dark endings. I suppose. <laughs> Same here. No, totally with you, Mark. I'm, I'm with you, man. But yeah, I, I do stand by that that assessment. That I feel that there's there's enough hope to give me some hope at the end of your end of your books that doesn't feel like you've been cheated. Like you said, with like this really sort of uh, disingenuous type, they danced off into the sunset kind of uh, ending. Look, let's end. Cause we're, I think this is going to end on a hopeful note just to tie nicely into the the interview. So how's that? That's mirroring just what we've been discussing. That's uh, that was all deliberate on my part, my ingenious um, interview skills. Tell me a little bit about Mike. Cause I, I think, you know, now, the thing, the reason I started the podcast, because I always like to hear, because there's no two answers the same, as to a period in your life, your writing life, where you very nearly put down the pen for whatever reason. You you might have been going through some stuff. It might have been one particular instance that stands out clear in your mind, or it might have been a you know like an extended period. 
was there any sort of period in your life like that? Because I remember you telling me about the circumstances as, as to why uh, running Wimra. But I was wondering if that was the, the that was the standout moment for you, and if that was that was the case, if you were comfortable about talking about that, or if it was something else where you where you thought at the time, man, I could easily give up right now and go some other direction in my life. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think that you know, even in the last um, eighteen months, you know, with with the pandemic and and everything that's um, flowed from that, like last year. Um, when we were here in Melbourne um, in in the depths of, the, of that extended lockdown, I found it really hard to write. I, I, I didn't, and I, ha- I haven't had that experience um, in the last, you know, five, six years like that. Like I, I really felt as though um, I had no... Uh, real drive to to sit down and write anything new it it was kind of okay like where i had um edits for the others to do like that was okay like where i had edits and that was kind of that um left brain kind of work i could Mm. do that but that pure creativity i found that really difficult and i think that's partly because you know you um, you're faced with just uh, more pressing daily um, existential sort of concerns. And, but also that, you know, it, it seemed at the time at least, I, I didn't analyse it deeply. I was just kind of th- thinking, oh, well, this is shit. And I don't feel like writing and I don't really feel like doing much at all. Mm. Um, but, I, but I think it was partly in looking back on it, I, th- I think it, it was just, you know, a real concern about where everything was, was headed and, and wondering where it was headed and would, um, you know, there's a long lead time for books and sitting down to, to draft a new novel when there was so much uncertainty um, around seemed like a really um, indulgent thing to be, to be doing, I suppose. Um, so, so it was, it was hard for, for me to get back into. I, I, it was probably this this year that I've turned the corner on that. Like I, I previously was really, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say I had that kind of Protestant work ethic of just going, oh, well, even if you don't feel like it, keep going. Because mm. um, I, I, I don't necessarily believe in that. But I... Um, I, I, I probably pushed through some some other times in my life when I thought, oh, this is tough, but just keep going. Um, this time around, I, I sat down and thought, well, no, you don't, you don't have to. You don't you don't have to keep going all the time. You can you can stop. Um, so yeah, I, I I don't sort of view view it as a as a negative thing. I, I think it was probably just a a re. Um, recalibrating i suppose in my life what was important too mm. you know like and and what was immediate and what was pressing and writing at the time just didn't feel feel that urgent to me but i but i know there's been other writers who have been like prolific during um during lockdown and, and during those times so I, I i don't know if my my experience is um is peculiar but but that's certainly what i went through yeah, it's different strokes of different folks, though, isn't it? I mean, like, certainly there's a lot of people I've spoken to or heard interviewed and talking about, yeah, they just could not could not really write during during lockdown. Like you mentioned, the, the indulgent <clears throat> is kind of perceived as a sort of indulgent pastime. And I t- totally agree with you. It can be perceived as that when you're in the thick of it with, with what's going on with, with the lockdown pandemic and this sort of uh, uncertain but certainly decidedly bleak sort of seemingly future. That, that when's this going to end? So I'm glad you pushed through it, man. Um, Really glad, actually, because I really enjoy your novels and I enjoy talking to you. Then let's end, Mark, by you telling, uh, being so good as to give us your advice to aspiring writers that uh, that might be listening to the program when they're starting out. I've realised that it's such a broad question, so I was wondering what you'd say to people that are wanting to start out. I think that's a good a good stage because I, I sure needed that sort of advice when I was uh, starting out myself. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Well, co- contrary to everything I just said in that last... <laughs> keep going. I'd say keep going. No, it's funny because I, I was actually thinking about this in the last um, 24 hours or so, not, not because we had this interview, but I, um, it just ca- came, came to me. I was reflecting back on um, my earlier experience with, with Wimra and when I was, you know, um, when I was drafting it and, and then I started sending it out to um publishers um and you know it was it was terrifying uh doing that uh but it was was so important to send my work out because when i look back on it now i had um some really good i had a lot like as i think when we spoke before what what i spoke about was um the rejections that I had early on for Wimride, mm. like it was rejected everywhere, um, multiple times, sometimes by the same publisher. Um, but some of those interactions that I had with, with publishers were incredibly important. Um, and some of the feedback that I got from editors who didn't take on the manuscript. They, they didn't acquire it, but they, they gave me feedback, uh, which was incredibly generous uh, and insightful and useful. And the, the book wouldn't be um, in the form it's in today without that kind of um, input that I got. And that input only happened because I sent the work out there, you know, um, and... You have to do that. Like as painful as it as it is, and as scary as it is, um, certainly send your work around your your writers group and everything else. Get as much feedback as you can. Make it as good as it can be. But at some point, you've got to you know push that little ship out into the water, and and see what happens. And you know and 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 listen as well because sometimes I got feedback and I was just like you know upset and horrified but like then you know in um the the cool light of day a couple of weeks later i could see it more clearly and go oh hang on there's there's some good stuff here and this is really useful um so yeah that my my biggest that would be my biggest piece of advice is to 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 send your work out don't be don't be frightened because the the publishing the publishing industry can seem really um, opaque mm. and and scary and um, very intimidating and, and all those those things. But the reality is, um, from all the people that I've met, and I don't just mean at my publisher, but other publishers as well, and people who work in um, literary ag- agents and people associated with the industry, people in bookstores, everyone, like. 99.9% of them are really lovely people and mm. they love they love books they love stories they love the written word they're not in it for for the money they they they're really passionate about um what they do and so yeah d- don't be frightened that's my advice it's <laughs> very very good advice honestly yeah because it's uh Again, 40-something interviews, and I don't know if I've had uh, heard someone say that in terms of being sure to send yourself out there. I like the little ship sort of description or simile or analogy there as well because it's so true. But, um, Mark, absolute pleasure talking to you, man. Always a pleasure reading your books. Um, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. Absolute pleasure talking to you on the show tonight. Thanks, Sam. It was great to chat. So everyone, that was Mark Brandy talking to me about his new novel, The Others. So huge thanks to Mark Brandy for speaking with me on the program tonight about The Others. Uh, As is you would come to expect now from the 40 plus episodes of the show, uh, I will post into the link or bio of this description of this episode, the link to uh, the good folks at Hachette, uh, who are Mark's publishers. So you can get a copy of the others along with Mark's other two books, The Rip and Wimmera as well, hot in your hot little hands there. So again, can't stress enough, thank you so much to Mark for coming on the program, talking to me about the others. And yeah, thank you to you, dear listener, as always, as well, for listening to this particular episode of the show, as well as all the others. If you haven't already, I'm seeing a lot of people doing it, I'm loving it. So if you haven't already, if you're not among them yet, 
go on back, listen to the back catalogs there of all the different episodes. We're getting kissing close to that uh, to that birthday milestone, the first birthday. I think that, uh, I don't know if you classify that as we're past our infancy or if the program's past our infancy or it's teething or my teething in the, the podcast sphere, but I think it's been going tremendously well. It's been absolute joy and true pleasure and privilege to speak to the amount of uh, insanely talented people that I have been, some of Australia's foremost literary uh, sort of greats there, luminaries really, I think is the only way to describe it, along with some filmmakers, smattering of filmmakers. Who knows what the future is going to hold for the program in the next year? I'm excited. It's an exciting time. It's a bit of an uncertain time, but in the best possible way, I think. Uh, And I'm cautiously optimistic as to what the future might hold. But uh, in the interim, yeah, if you haven't already, please give a cheeky like on Spotify there or SoundCloud, wherever you're listening to this on. Tell your friends, tell your hairdressers, because you're about to go back to them if you're in Sydney. At least I think so if you're vaxxed. So that uh, makes brings me to the next point of naturally... uh, dovetails into getting vaxxed be sure to get vaxxed if you haven't already yes i am one of those people that champions getting vaxxed so please do that as well as supporting your local bookstores in uh sydney and melbourne in particular i stress that because i think that they're kind of in the most dire straight still with the lockdowns smelly lockdowns restrictions and all that sort of stuff and plus i mean it's the best time to obviously get cracking with reading for me uh, i'm very partial to the good folks at the bookshop darlinghurst so if i could send business their way because they're just such a an icon, an institution of a bookseller, brick and mortar bookshop in Sydney. So get on their website there as well, the bookshop Darlinghurst. But in the interim, I digress. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Check out all the others. A few more coming up for the end of the year to cap it off. And uh, yeah, I'll keep on keeping on if you keep listening and uh, we'll keep going along this sort of lovingly mutually beneficial type situation. But uh, bye for now.